Remain standing for our gospel lesson, also our sermon text from John 17. I'm going to read verses 6 through 11, not the whole passage in your bulletin. Listen carefully. This is God's gospel. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess as Jesus teaches later in this passage that your word is truth and that you sanctify us by that word. Do that this morning, this Lord's day, as we meditate on this prayer of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. I decided to take verses 6 to 19 um, and turn it into two sermons instead of one. So we'll be looking at 6 to 11 this time, and next time we'll, we'll cover 12 to 19. Scripture says in a few places that Jesus prays for us. Right now, he's at the Father's side praying for us, for you and me, for his people. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Interceding means praying on our behalf. So Jesus is praying for you. Just, Just stop and delight in that truth for a moment. Jesus is interceding. For you. He's petitioning the Father for you. Now, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered about the content of those prayers, of, those, of that intercession? What is Christ asking the Father for on your behalf, even now? Our Lord's prayer here in John 17 is precious revelation because it provides a window into Christ's priestly intercession. It reveals how God the Son prays to God the Father on our behalf. We can understand then why this chapter has been called the Holy of Holies of Sacred Scripture. It bears the heart of our Good Shepherd 
who loves us enough to pray for us, to bring us before the Father. The people that you pray for are the people that you love. Jesus loves us, and so he prays for us. And Jesus spent a lot of time praying during his earthly ministry, and he especially prayed a lot on the eve of his death, which is when John 17 takes place. A little later in the evening, as the other gospel writers tell us, Jesus prayed three agonizing prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane while the disciples kept falling asleep. Christ's prayer in John 17 happened earlier in the evening, maybe not much at all. And John is the only gospel that records this particular part of his prayers on that evening. Perhaps John, the disciple Jesus loved, was the only one close enough to hear what Jesus was praying at this time. He obviously thought it was important, so he records it for us. We looked at verses 1 to 5 last week, and there Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his glory as well as his Father's glory. He asks God to glorify him in his death and then in heaven and then in his church through the church age. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays specifically for his 12 disciples minus Judas. He prays for the 11 apostles that God chose to save before the foundation of the world. And we'll see as we walk through this passage today and next time that he prays for their protection. He prays for their full measure of joy. And he prays for their sanctification. Protection, joy, sanctification. Protect, give joy, sanctify. That's what he wants for us. That's what he asked God for, for us. We realize in this prayer that Jesus knows exactly what we need. He knows our shortcomings. He knows our temptations. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our proclivities as redeemed and yet still sinful humans. He knows what to pray for. The things Jesus prays for in John 17 are things that don't come natural to us as in our fallen state. They don't, they don't come to us naturally at all. You and I do need God to protect us. We need Him to keep us in the faith because our propensity is to drift away, to fall away, to wander off like wayward sheep. So we need Him to protect us from disunity because we're not naturally drawn toward unity. We need him to protect us daily from the snares and fiery darts of the evil one, as Jesus puts it here. We need him to give us the joy that only comes from him, as he talks about in verse 13, I believe. We, we don't naturally pursue the fullness of joy. We don't wake up every morning looking for joy in the right places. And so some of those things that I just outlined or what we're going to be looking at in verses 6 to 19. We need God God constantly to turn our hearts away from earthly things, earthly joys, so that we lay up our treasures in heaven. And we need God to sanctify us. 
by his word, by the truth. Our gravitational pull is not toward holiness. We need God to continually make us more like him through his word. Therefore, these are the things that Jesus prays for. He prays for the disciples' protection from disunity, protection from falling away, protection from the evil one. He prays for their full measure of joy and their sanctification. But before Jesus offers up these petitions, in verses 11 to 19, he identifies who he's praying for in verses 6 and following, really all the way through verse 10. And the first thing he does in verses 6, 7, and 8, if you have your Bibles open to John 17, the first thing he does in verses 6, 7, and 8 is to establish his disciples as the objects of God's saving grace. He's praying for, and he's only praying for, he says, chosen and redeemed men. These are men who have seen and understood the revelation of the Father in the Son. They've seen and they've understood the revelation of the Father in His Son. Let's look at verses 6 to 8. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. In receiving the words of Jesus, these men received the words of God. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to make God known, to reveal to us who God is, to reveal God's character and nature And words. Now, Jesus says, now, at the end of his ministry, now these 11 disciples recognize that all Jesus has taught them, everything he's given them, has come from God. That word now indicates that there's been something new of recent. Now, Still, they they obviously don't enjoy thorough comprehension and deep faith. They don't really fully get it yet. In fact, there's still profound confusion and the temptation to doubt. But Jesus can still say that they've come to know surely. That's the word Jesus uses in verse 8. They've come to believe with fresh certainty that Jesus was sent from the Father. Consider how gracious Jesus is in evaluating the disciples' faith here. Jesus knows full well that the disciples are not models of faith. Their faith is little and it's weak. Their fearless leader is about to deny Jesus Three times. In fact, right after this prayer in John 17, Jesus will go on to tell all 11 of them that they're about to fall away. That's the word he used, that's the term he uses, fall away from their faith. Here's Matthew's account of what happens soon after this prayer in John 17, Matthew 26. Then Jesus said to them, 
you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to them, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So this is what Jesus has to work with. Overconfident, self-deceiving followers. And yet in his prayer in John 17... At about the same time that he says what he just said there, that I just read, he accepts their faith, though it be small, and even commends it to the Father. That's how gracious and kind your Savior is. That's how gentle and merciful your Lord and God, Jesus Christ, is. That's how compassionate and slow to anger he is. Not just with his original disciples, but also with you. Lord Jesus Christ is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's from Exodus 34. Bobby read a a version of that from Psalm 103 during during the pardon of sin. That's who Jesus is. That's who Yahweh is in the Old Covenant, and Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And that's why he can talk about the disciples' faith and obedience in such glowing terms, it seems like to us, in verses 6 to 8. Is this realistic? Well, this is good news for those of you who, like me, often have faith that looks a lot like the faith of these overconfident, self-deceived disciples. The the good news is that your faith and your obedience, they don't have to be big and strong for God to accept your faith. Now, to be sure, your belief in Jesus must be living and active, vibrant, obedient. But take heart. God never despises genuine faith that is feeble and faltering. Before any of these 11 men ever believed in Jesus, they belonged to the Father. He had chosen them. And then he gave them to the Son. Verse 6 says he gave them to Jesus out of the world. So even though we are chosen in Jesus before the foundation of the world, we are still born in sin. We are conceived in sin and we must be rescued out of sin. And in this case, Jesus calls it out of the world. God had predestined these men to be his children before time. He elected them to be saved before they existed. They became disciples of Jesus by the choice of the Father and then in time, by the choice of the Son. As Paul says in Romans nine 
16. It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of him who shows mercy, which is God. Or as John himself puts it back in chapter 1 of this gospel, they became children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 17, 6 displays the unbounded nature of God's sovereign, his sovereignty in salvation. Now, we often think of Jesus as God's gift to us. But how often do we remember that we are also God's gift to Jesus? Do you ever think about that? Obviously, Jesus is God's gift to us. That's easy to understand and accept. But do you believe, do you accept that you are God's gift to Jesus? The Father's gift to Jesus. Of course, the two gifts aren't equal. They're not parallel gifts. In fact, in some ways, they're opposites. On the one hand, God's gift of Jesus to us is a gift that we needed but didn't want. On the other hand, God's gift of uh, God's gift to us, I'm sorry, to Jesus of us is a gift that he wanted but didn't need. God's gift of us to Jesus is a gift that he wanted but didn't need. So it's the opposite. We needed Jesus, but didn't want him. He wanted us, but didn't need us. The Father gave Jesus what he wanted, but didn't need. He gave us what we needed, but didn't want. But there's a more important difference between these two gifts. We did nothing to earn God's gift of Jesus. We paid nothing to receive Jesus. And yet Jesus paid everything to receive God's gift of us to him. He died on the cross in order to receive you as a gift from the Father. Can you see the deep deep love of your savior in this prayer? The predestination theme, the theme of God's unconditional election, is reinforced in verses 9 and 10. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You see, there's a special kinship between Christ and his people. He offers special prayers to his, for his special people. And not for the world, because God chose them. And so they, these disciples in particular, belong to God. They're his prized possession. And, and they're, they're his possession in a way that the rest of the world is not. Of course, God owns everything. But his people are his prized possession in a way that his non-people are not. 
the world is not. And Jesus knows that his prayers for his disciples, his people, will be answered because he's praying to the one who owns them. And yet at the same time, the disciples don't belong to the Father only. They belong equally to the Son. Do you see that? Jesus is praying out of love for what he himself owns, not just what the Father owns. Think about the Christological implications of this. Consider what verse 10 says about the person of Jesus Christ. If verse 10 is true, Jesus can't be a mere man. A mere man can say to God, all I have is yours. I can say that, you can say that, you should say that. That's the first part of verse 10. But no mere man could ever say to God, all you have is mine. Only a God-man could say that. Only one of the persons of God could speak verse 10 truthfully. Notice again our Lord's gracious acceptance of his disciples at the end of verse 10. I am glorified in them. Glory comes to me through them. Through these disciples that are about to scatter and fall away. I'm glorified in them. It appears to us that the extent to which the disciples have glorified Jesus is pathetically small at this point in the game. But Jesus accepts it. After all, their faith and obedience are dramatically better than what Jesus has received from the world. Our gentle and lowly Savior doesn't despise the little faith of his people. In fact, even your little faith brings him and his father genuine glory. Jesus is never ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters, as Hebrews says. Even when the extent to which your life glorifies him seems pathetically small to you. Maybe even to others. After Jesus identifies the chosen and redeemed men that he's praying for, he begins to petition God on their behalf in verses 11 and and following. This is where Christ prays for their protection, their joy, and their sanctification, their growth and holiness. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus focuses on their relationships with other believers. So that's, that's what verse... Verses 11 and 12 are about their relationships with other Christians. And in verse 11, he prays specifically that God would protect them from disunity. And we're just going to meditate on this verse for the rest of the sermon. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Jesus prayed for them to be one because he knew that we had faced the temptation 
to break fellowship over matters that are not gospel matters, on issues that are not central to Christ and his kingdom. Every generation of the church faces this. Every generation of the church has known division. Going back to the New Testament church, even the great missionaries Paul and Barnabas had a hard time seeing things the same way, didn't they? But unity among the brethren is what glorifies Jesus. Disunity among his sheep brings him dishonor. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote, For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. Psalm 133 is a favorite of mine. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, when the brethren dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing Life forevermore. Is there anything better, anything more pleasant to the Lord than when his children dwell, live in unity? Is there anything that brings more glory to Jesus than when his brothers and sisters, for whom he died, live together in Christian unity, Christian fellowship? If you're a parent of multiple children, you know the answer because you know how good and pleasant it is when your children live together, dwell in unity. Children, if you want to bring immense joy to your parents and to your God then strive to dwell in unity with your siblings. Strive to love the brothers and sisters that God has given to you, that live with you in your home. It's one of the ways that you can please your parents and please your heavenly Father. There are few things that bring greater joy to your parents, children, than that. Or to God, than watching you serve and get along with your siblings. Adults, the same is true for us. There are few things that bring greater joy to God than watching us serve one another and love one another and cover over one another's sins with love. And so for the next 50 years, for the next century, Let's be a church that specializes in unity, consciously, maybe more consciously than we ever have before. Let's be known by the world as the church that loves one another deeply, as Peter puts it in a verse I'm going to read in a second. After all, Jesus said earlier in this gospel, in John's gospel, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And there's even biblical warrant for making this our top priority. 1 Peter 
above all things. Above all things means put it at the top of the priority list. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover over a multitude of sins. I like another translation, which hangs on the wall in my bedroom. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. May Christ the King Church be characterized by this kind of love for as long as each one of us here in this sanctuary today is alive. May your marriage be characterized by this kind of love for as long as you both shall live. May our homes be filled with this kind of love and unity. Paul says in Ephesians 5.2, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's a very important statement there. That's the kind of love he's talking about. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May our relationships in this body, in this congregation, in this church, be a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And may it spill out beyond our body as we imitate the love of Jesus Christ. Christian unity depends on this kind of love. Christian unity is this kind of love. Love that covers over sins rather than holding sins against others. And this kind of love can only be discovered, can only be experienced in Christ because it must first be received from Christ. You can only experience this in Christ because you must first receive it from Christ before you can give it or know it. So let's make CTK a place where others can see and experience the unity-producing love of Christ and his people. When we come back next time to look at verses 12 to 19, we'll see that this unity, which is only available in Christ, this unity is the context in which Jesus protects us from falling away. This unity is the context in which Jesus protects us from the evil one. This unity is the context in which Jesus gives us the full measure of his joy. He calls it my joy, as we'll see next time. And it is the context in which he sanctifies us, makes us holy, makes us more like himself. The context for these gifts that God gives, that Jesus prays for, the context is Christian unity, which is fueled by Christian biblical love. And the means by which Jesus gives these gifts, as we'll see, is God's word, which is truth. Let's pray. Father, work this love 
and unity in us. Give us a unity. Cultivate in us a unity that we've not had. May we continue to move inward and upward in this kind of love and unity by your grace working in us. We depend on you to do this. Help us in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen.